Would you pray with me? Lord, we gather now before your word. We ask you to please remove the scales from our eyes. Open our hearts to see beautiful, glorious things from your word. I pray that you would encourage us, admonish us, prepare and equip us for the fight of holiness that is our lot as your people. God, do these things this morning through Jesus Christ. Amen. We are going to be in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. So if you're visiting with us, we've got sort of two concurrent sermon series happening right now. Alex, the teaching pastor here, is going through the book of Matthew. So he's in the Sermon on the Mount right now. And then I've been going through, when I have opportunity, to preach the book of Philippians. And so we are in Philippians chapter 2. This is a very important text for understanding your experience as a Christian. This was a, an earth-shaking text for me, and so I count it a great privilege to be able to bring it before you this morning. Philippians chapter 2, we'll start in verse 12, and we'll read to verse 18. Philippians 2.12, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should rejoice and be glad with me. I will divide this text into three headings, all having to do with Christian sanctification, Christian obedience. If you see the title of this sermon in your bulletin, this sermon is called The Miracle of Christian Obedience. And that's really the name of my first point, and the bulk of this sermon will be tied up in the first point of it. Number one, we'll talk about the miracle of sanctification. Then, number two, we'll talk about the spectacle of sanctification. And number three, the pinnacle of sanctification. Let's start with point one. Let's look at the miracle of Christian obedience, the miracle of sanctification. We have a therefore. How does this passage relate with what has come before? Do you remember what we looked at in verses 1 through 11? The unity that was described earlier in this chapter, or rather that was prescribed earlier in this chapter. Stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. 
Be of the same mind. Have the same heart. Have the same love. Be in full accord with one another. All these things are coming from Philippians, the end of Philippians 1, the beginning of Philippians 2. Count others more significant than yourselves. Take an interest not only in your things, but also in the things of others. So the very humility, unity, selflessness that was described before, that was illustrated by Christ and his humiliation, his stooping, his condescension. Paul wants them to do that. Do it. Obey this. So what does he tell them to do? Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, all that sort of preface talk to this command. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So, what does that mean? Work out. Well, put simply, I just think it means obey. Uh, why do I think that? Well, let's look back at the text. What does he say? You've obeyed in my presence. Now work out your salvation in my absence. I think that that's a, that's a parallel there. You've always obeyed in my presence. Now it's even more important in my absence that you continue to obey. Work out your salvation. So I think he's just telling them to obey. Seems pretty easy. Now... The challenging part, what about the fact that it's our salvation that we are supposed to work out? Some translations say bring about in a more troubling way. And that we're supposed to do so with fear and trembling. What do these things mean? In what way should the working out of our salvation, whatever that means, in what way should that induce fear for God's people? Trembling. For God's people. Now, the easiest way to sort of assuage any nervousness that we have looking at this text is just to say, well, I mean, what do we have to be afraid of? We're Christians. We're safe, aren't we? So, I mean, it doesn't matter whether I obey or not, right? Wrong. Dreadfully wrong. The fact that you're safe in Jesus does not render your obedience unnecessary or superfluous. I want to make that point from this text. Before I do, I just want to address sort of fear and trembling. Then we'll, we'll get into sort of the meat here, but I want, I want to address fear and trembling. What does that mean? Are we supposed to be afraid as Christians? Are we supposed to tremble? Are we supposed to feel terror towards God? I thought God was our Father. Why are we doing this with fear and trembling? Well, the whole emphasis of this text is going to be joyful assurance. So I don't think that what Paul is telling us to do here is to live in terror towards God. So what are we to fear? Well, my contention is that we should have a, a reverence, an awe, a trembling. As we work out our salvation, what are we afraid of? Well, we have a a reverence, a, a fear, you might call it, at the prospect of serving the living God himself. It is God that makes us tremble. We don't have the terror that a child feels 
towards like an abusive, malevolent, evil father. That's not what we have. But imagine a father and child are walking down the street and a man appears out of the alley and tries to abduct or attack the child. And the father just, uh, just lays this guy out, right? Subdues him, beats him down. The child watches this happen. Should the child fear terror towards his father now? Like, what if he does that to me? No. The whole reason he did that was to protect you, right? But the child looks at his father a little bit differently now knowing what his father is capable of, right? There's a, there's a respect there that may not have been there before. A, a sense of maybe you could even say reverence. Why? Well, knowing I don't want to cross this man. He, he loves me. I can go to him whenever I need him. But I've seen what he does to his enemies. So that makes me respect him and see him in a bit of a different, more serious light. And that is in every way appropriate for those of us who claim to serve the living God. To have that sort of reverence. First Peter addresses this. He says, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. I would say it's a similar way of saying, work out your salvation. And if you call, this is Peter, and if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. I think this is a similar sense here. We work out our salvation, our salvation with fear and trembling, with a, a reverence, a seriousness, a, a, a great, grand, grave respect towards the living God himself. Though he loves us and we have access to him, we are not flippant towards him. On the contrary, though he loves us, yet we tremble. And I hope you immediately feel the tension in this verse. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Which is it? Am I working it out? Or is God working it? Who's doing the work here? I thought my salvation was all about God's grace, but now Paul's here telling me to work it out as if it's up to me. And what with fear and trembling? Right? I mean, is this my works that that are at stake here or God's grace? What, what's, what's going on here? Is salvation accomplished by God or by me? Well, in order to, to understand this text and other texts like it in the New Testament, we must be able to say two things at once. So I'm going to say two things. Both of these things are true. One, your works are not the basis of your salvation. Okay, your works are not the basis of your salvation. Two, if you do not work out your salvation, you will not see the Lord. You feel that? It's tension. Both those things are true. Why do I say both those things are true? Because the Bible says them both over and over again. 
New Testament teaches, by works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. It is the ungodly that God justifies. It is to the one that does not work, but believes. His faith will be counted as righteousness. Amen. And, and, the New Testament tells us to pursue a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And I don't think that's talking about, that's in Hebrews, that's not talking about like positional holiness, we're holy because of Christ. You know how I know that? Because he's telling you to pursue it. Pursue a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Jesus himself warns you that if instead of plucking out your eye, you continually choose to sin with it, you will go to hell. Those are the words of Jesus. The Bible says both of these things. And we ought not try to soften or change Paul's words here. We need to give them their full force. You must work out your salvation. One commentator says this, quote, Salvation in its entire scope includes the manifestation of righteousness in our lives. So it follows that our activity is integral to the process of salvation. He also says, same commentator, this, should, this thought, looking at this verse, this thought should give us pause. Our salvation, which we confess to be God's from beginning to end, is here described as something that we must work out. End quote. So our natural impulse here is to deny one of these sides. We resolve the tension by downplaying one side and upplaying the other. So you could overemphasize the first part of the verse. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So you arrive at something like God helps those who help themselves. Wrong. Or you could overemphasize the second part of the verse. Such that it means, well, we don't do anything. Nothing I do matters. God's going to do it all. Wrong. I say to you, Emmanuel Church, we must loudly affirm both of these things. We should be able to look at a professing Christian who's living in unrepentant sin and say to them, if you don't repent, you're going to hell. And we should be able to sing loudly that it is only by God's amazing grace that wretches like us are saved and not by our works. This can be startling, the emphasis that Paul puts on our works here in this text, but let me tell you, it is a real emphasis. I'll comfort you by saying the rest of the passage is going to clearly explain what this means, but it will not undo what is said here. Your works matter. Your obedience matters. It matters eternally. The things you do matter. But then how is it that we are saved by grace and not by works? If we are to work out our salvation, if our works are this vital, this crucial, how is it that we're saved by grace? How can our obedience be so important, even vital, and yet we're not saved by it? Let's keep reading. 
Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For, blessed conjunction, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So much just happened right there. So much just happened. Let's make one observation at a time here. One, what can we observe from this part of the text? Your good works are God working in you. Do you see that? I'm not making it up. See it in the text. It's right there. Work out your salvation for, because, since, God is the one who works in you. So as you move your hands in service to God, God's doing that. As you serve your family by washing the dishes and making the bed and working diligently at your job, God is doing that. As you're confronted with an image on the television or the internet that is unseemly, or maybe even in your own mind, you're confronted with an image that would stoke up lust in your heart, and you force your eyes, you force your thoughts towards things that are good and right and beautiful. God did that. God did that work that you just worked. As you control your tongue, not to speak things that are hurtful, cruel, or crude, or divisive, God is doing that. So in the arena of Christian obedience, this is an axiomatic statement. If you do it, God did it. If you don't do it, it won't happen. You see that? If you do it, that's God that did it. But your works do matter because if you don't do it, it doesn't get done. It doesn't happen. If you don't avert your eyes from that image, your eyes look at the image. You've got to do it. And if you do it, guess what? God did it. So do it. Obey. Work. Precisely because it's God working in you when you work. One, your good works are God working in you. It's the first observation we make from this. Two, your salvation is not ultimately dependent on your works, but on the work of God. This destroys any ground for boasting. Doesn't it? What have you done? What have you accomplished? What great thing have you done? You brought about nothing without God working in you to bring it about. Any good work you have is ultimately the work of God in you. So what have you done to boast about to God? Nothing. And so it's obvious from this, you can't make yourself right with God by your works. And listen, once you become a Christian, once you're reconciled to God, you cannot add to your right standing with God by your works. These things are obvious here. Why? Because the one thing that this text shows us is that God is the one who did it in you anyways. So how are you going to bring that as merit before him? 
However, his previous statement is underscored. It is vital that you obey. Because now, what does it mean if you don't? God's not working in you. The fruit of the Spirit is not being born in you. Your obedience is the manifestation of what God is doing in you. Your obedience is important because it means that God is indeed at work within you. Your obedience is a manifestation outwardly of an inward reality that God is indeed working in you. Third observation. Last observation I'll make from this point of the text. We saw that your good works are God working in you. Your salvation is not ultimately dependent on your works, but on God's working. This is marvelous. Your will to work is God working in you. Not just your works. Your will to work is God working in you. So not only is the movement of your hands, your eyes, your tongue, not only are they the work of God, your very will to do those things, the very desire you have to do those things, that is God working in you. God controls your desires. God controls your will. So if all ground for boasting has already been destroyed, now it's been obliterated. Right, so what What praise or glory have you earned by your good works? Yeah, you're doing the work. It's your will, your desires, your activity, but what credit you deserved. The very desire you have to obey God is the work of God's own hand. So again, I ask, how can our works possibly earn us merit with God? Any good deed you've ever done was the work of his own hand, and apparently any will or inclination that you had to even do that deed was the work of his own hand. So holiness is truly the work of God, so how could we impress him with our acts? Uh, I apologize. Paul, do I need to switch over to this mic? Okay. Do I need to mute this or just turn it off completely? Does it matter? Okay. The book of Hebrews says something similar to this. At the very end of the book, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. So Christian, it is God who equips you to do his will. And not only that, it is God who works his own will in you. And how does he do this? Well, according to Hebrews 13, it's by the blood of the eternal covenant. Let me give you a quote here from Jonathan Edwards. I've used this quote once before. I remember where I was standing the first time I heard this. I lived in Daphne, Alabama. I was listening to a sermon by John Piper on this topic, and he brought this quote up from Jonathan Edwards. And I remember I had just finished running. I was stretching in someone's yard, uh, the house that I was living in at the time, not just a random person's yard. And... um, It was confusing the way I said that. I was stretching. I heard this quote. I stood up, and everything was different. Now that I've 
possibly overstated the significance of this quote. <laughs> Let me give it to you. So this is Jonathan Edwards. On the topic of obedience, sanctification, holiness, God's at work, we're at work. Does God do part and we do the rest? Quote, we are not merely passive in it, in the work of sanctification, nor does God do some and we do the rest, but God does all. And we do all. God produces all, we act all. For that is what he produces, our acts. Wonderful. God does it, you do it. God does part, I do part. No, God does every bit of it. What do I do? Every bit of it. You know why? Because what's God doing? Your doing is what he's doing. Your actions are what he's doing. John Murray says this so clearly. I'll finish this point with John Murray. Quote, God's working in us is not suspended because we work, nor is our working suspended because God works. Neither is the relationship one of cooperation, as if God did his part and we did ours, so that the coordination of both produced the result. God works, and we also work. But the relationship is that because God works, we work. All working out of salvation on our part is the effect of God's working in us. And so, quote continuing, we have here not only the explanation of our good activity, we have the incentive for our willing and our working. The more, get this, the more persistently active we are in working, the more persuaded we may be that all of that energizing grace and power has been from God. Amen. Good grief. <laughs> Seriously, that is wonderful. So let me close this first point of the sermon. Like I said, the first point is the bulk of the sermon. Let me close this point by saying, this is what I've called it. This is a miracle. This is the miracle of Christian sanctification. Just like justification is a miracle, God pulls out the heart of stone, puts in a heart of flesh. God resurrects dead, dry bones. Our sanctification is a miracle. That we are saved only through faith and God's grace. We are not saved by works. And yet, God will work in you such that you will be saved. Ephesians 2 says this clearly. By grace you have been saved. Through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works. So that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus. For good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, though we are not saved by our works, we are certainly saved for our works. Though our salvation is not a result of works, works must result from our salvation. You understand that? 
We're not saved as a result of our works, but works will be the result of our salvation. One produces the other, and don't get them mixed up. So, Emmanuel Church, acknowledge this miracle. See it. Rejoice in it. That God himself works in such sinners that we work for his good pleasure. And then, what are we to do? Work. Emmanuel Church, labor. Work out your salvation. Lift drooping hands. Strengthen weak knees. Put your hand to the plow of good works and do not look back. One, the miracle of sanctification. Two, let's continue. That in place, that monumental stone in place in the foundation now. Two, the spectacle of sanctification. So the word sanctification as we use it now, it's kind of shorthand for like the Christian life from conversion till glory. Like the, the, the upward tick of holiness in the Christian life. The Christian experience of growing in holiness. Those are fine ways to talk about sanctification. And let me add to that by calling our attention back to where we get that word sanctification. What does it mean at its root to sanctify something? Set apart, different, other, unique, consecrated, holy. All these words are in the same cluster. So let's see. How are we set apart? How are we sanctified here? Among the glories of Christian holiness, one of them is this. We are set apart from the world around us. In a generation that is crooked and perverse and twisted, you are straight as an arrow, wholesome, holy. That's what Paul says. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And what's, what's our role in that generation? Well, we shine as lights in the world. We are different, set apart. Because, look around you. Is not the world around you dark, crooked, deeply twisted? Basic realities about the created order are rejected. Suicidality, up. Depression rates, up. Even in the youngest among us, who should be the most innocent among us, those things have skyrocketed. Marriage is frowned upon as oppressive to your sexual autonomy. Children are seen as an inconvenience to your personal happiness. So much so that it might even be better if they were dead than weighing you down. Kids are being hypersexualized at younger and younger ages. Seems like in a calculating, systematic fashion even. Infidelity, drug abuse, school shootings, child trafficking, pornography, abusive parents, destroyed families. Christian, you live in a crooked and perverse, twisted generation. It's dark out there. But Paul says this 2,000 years ago. Don't be deceived. 
It's always been dark out there. Was Sodom crooked and perverse? Was Rome? You bet. Was Nineveh? This is an old story. The world has always been crooked and perverse. Now, there are times when societies can be more or less moral, but do not be deceived. The world in which you live is crooked and perverse and has always been so. The world our grandparents lived in was crooked and perverse. If you don't believe me, at what point in human history have principalities and powers of darkness relented in their sway on society? Never. Paul says this thousands of years ago, but it's still true today. But don't think that your lot in life, Christian, is unique in living in such a crooked and perverse world. You join every other Christian that has ever lived when you do so. And what are we to do? Shine. Shine as lights in the world. The church has always shone like a light and an always perverse, always crooked generation. That miracle that we talked about that God works in us to make us holy in spite of our sin, to work in us that which is pleasing in his sight, that's what causes the church to shine like a light in a dark place. And what is it that distinguishes us from the world? Remember, we're sanctified, we're set apart. We shine in a dark place. We're light, they're dark. What is it that separates us, sets us apart? Well, look at the context. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you may be blameless and innocent in the midst of a crooked generation, shining like lights in the world. Paul highlights what? Division, grumbling, disputing. That's what sets you apart in this context anyways. You're not given to faction. You're not selfish. You don't serve your own lusts. You don't covet things that belong to your neighbor. Instead, you're content. You live in surprising harmony with one another. You deny yourself what your lusts demand, and you praise God when you do so. That's different, really different, than what's going on around you. And where has that been seen before in society? Where, where is there a, a generation that was not crooked and perverse, but was like that? Nowhere. Never been seen. Show me the society that has never had to build a prison. Doesn't exist. Nathaniel Hawthorne draws that out in the opening lines of his book, The Scarlet Letter. Here's what he says. Quote, The founders of any new colony, whatever utopia of human virtue and happiness they might originally project, have invariably, have always recognized it among their earliest necessities to allot a portion of that clean and virgin soil as a prison and another portion of that clean and virgin soil as a cemetery. See what he's saying there? Whatever utopia, whatever, whatever wonderful, great society, whatever new deal is before you as a society, as a culture, Always prisons, always graveyards. One thing that's so admirable about the American Constitution is that the framers 
tried their best to solve for this. They were aware of the factious nature of people. They knew this was a problem. And so they designed one of the most effective, most durable systems of government the world has ever known. And it is durable. You may say, though, the Roman Empire lasted a long time, a lot longer than America. The American Constitution has outlived a lot of other constitutions. Maybe all. And yet, look around you. Do you see any faction happening around you? You bet. And if James Madison and John Adams and George Washington couldn't figure this out, who could? How do you get past the factious, selfish nature of human individuals? You need what? You need a miracle, right? Well, lucky for us, that's just what we've got. So the power that can bring down walls and tear down faction, it's not going to be found in the hands of politicians. That miracle only happens within the people of the church. And so it is the harmony of the church that will make us shine against the dark and dirty backdrop of a crooked and perverse generation. Our harmony makes us shine. And so we do this with constancy. We, we, we emphasize unity. We seek to tamp down our own lusts, our own desires, our own covetousness, and, and live in a way that we count others more significant than ourselves. It's how we live in the body of Christ. And that makes us shine. No grumbling, no disputing. Don't be like the Israelites who grumbled and disputed with God in the wilderness. And that's what Paul's referring to when he says grumbling and disputing there. He's referring to the children of Israel. You know how I know that? Because Paul goes on. I want you to pay really careful attention to the language that I'm going to use reading from Philippians and then the language that we're going to hear from Deuteronomy. Pay really close attention. See if you see any overlap. Okay? Quote, Philippians. You are children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Listen to Deuteronomy 32.5, Moses talking to Israel on God's behalf. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and perverse generation. So in Deuteronomy, Moses says, you're not God's children, Israel, because you're blemished. You're a crooked and a twisted generation because you're grumbling and you're disputing. What does Paul say in our text? What does he say about you? You who live harmoniously with your brothers and sisters. You are God's children. Not God's children, are God's children. You're blemished without blemish. You're a crooked and perverse generation. You live within a crooked and perverse generation. And you shine like lights in that world because you are not blemished. Why? Because you're not grumbling. You're not disputing. You, you see what we talked about in the first 11 verses of Philippians? Unity. Harmony. Others more significant than me. That's what makes the church shine. That right there, having the mind of Christ. Have you ever spent time in a home that's just full of warmth and love and affection and shalom, harmony, 
to see a husband and wife who happily love and serve one another, children who joyfully submit to their parents most of the time and are generally respectful, well-behaved, kind to one another. Instead of falling apart, this family thrives. So many people in the world have never enjoyed that sort of wholesome and wonderful relationship. And the church ought to be such a family, ought to be such a home, into which we welcome those who long for unity and harmony and love. The glory of Christian harmony ought to burst forth from the church such that the church truly shines in a world that is rabid with division and malice and hatred. It is our harmony that will set us apart, our unity that will set us apart, that will cause us to shine. Three, the pinnacle of sanctification. The pinnacle, the height, the summit. Where does Paul turn his attention? Paul turns his attention to the last day. He wants them to be blameless. He wants them to be innocent children of God without blemish. Why? Because he wants to present them so before Christ on the last day. He doesn't want the last day to prove that his labor for them was vain. This is the height, the pinnacle, the goal of Christian obedience. That in the last day, when obedience is tested, it would be found genuine, real, true, sincere, Not artifice, not pretense, not hypocrisy. No, instead, we should let love be genuine. Our love and our unity ought to be real, thriving, vital unity and love. This harkens back to Philippians 1, this focus on the last day. What does Paul say there? He says that at the day of Christ, what was begun by Christ will be brought to completion by Christ. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. At the last day, our sanctification will be complete and it will be demonstrated to have been real and true all along. I think of the Christian school teachers that I had when I was growing up who took a lot less money than they might have made somewhere else. Why? They believed that they could positively influence me and others like me towards holiness. And so in the last day, I hope that their humble efforts will, by God's grace, be vindicated. And so you ought to hope for anyone who has had a stake in your holiness, that they would look on you at the last day and be proud that their efforts towards you were not in vain, but that your sanctification was true and genuine and real, and shown to be so when it is complete. And so we ought to, like Paul, take an interest in the sanctification of those around you. Look at what Paul says. Holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be poured out, or I'm sorry, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad. I rejoice with you all. And likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. You see, Paul's taking an interest in their holiness, and he's asking them to do the same. Let's rejoice together in this effort of holiness that we are engaged in with locked arms. 
I said that this final point was the, the pinnacle of sanctification, referring mainly to the last day. And that's true, I believe that. But I think that in this life, perhaps, this is the high point of sanctification. Where, where you not only kill your sin and pursue holiness, but you take a familial interest in the obedience of your brothers and sisters. You, you take a fatherly, paternal interest in those young men after you that are pursuing holiness. You take a, a maternal, a, a motherly interest in those young women who are coming after you that are pursuing holiness. Titus 2 lays that out clearly. What a high point of Christian growth. And Ephesians 4 describes it this way. The whole point of growth is a stable maturity in which, quote, the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up, itself up in love, end quote. So Christian, you are to be a force for the obedience, the sanctification, the holiness of your brothers and sisters. Their obedience is to be your joy. Your eyes are on the day of Christ, but not only for your sake, but for the sake of taking pride in the final vindication of your brother's holiness. Because you helped him get there safely, and he helped you. Pinnacle. High point. Marrow of sanctification. When we do it together, joyfully. I want to take a few moments just for some final applications here. So we looked at the miracle of Christian sanctification, the, the spectacle that it is before the world, the pinnacle, the goal, the high point of Christian sanctification, both in this life and the next. A few just points of application. We've got five. One, our effort matters. Our effort matters. Notice, Paul does not conclude, God is at work within you, so just let him work. Don't do anything. No, Paul concludes the opposite. Paul says, God is the one at work within you, so... And he proceeds to make the boldest declaration possibly in the New Testament of the importance of our work in sanctification. Paul uses God's activity as a reason that we should work hard in the fight for holiness. And really the application I want to make here is just the grammar. It all comes down to that one word, for. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why, Paul? Why should I work? For, precisely because God is the one working in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So Emmanuel, I made this application earlier. I want to highlight it. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Let's get to work. Two, this is a grand encouragement for us in the fight for holiness. What an encouragement for us that God is the one working in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. Your heart feels cold. Your affections feel weak. You find within yourself at that time an inkling of desire for God 
for obedience, for holiness. In a dark cave where you feel cold, your affections have waned, you see one little ray of light coming into that cave. What an encouragement. That the slightest inclination to praise God, to obey God, to serve God, that inclination is God himself at work within you. So go after it. Grab hold of that little golden thread, however thin it is, and you follow it all the way to glory. When your heart is cold and dead and weak, any desire towards holiness in you should be seen and recognized and taken advantage of as God himself throwing you a line, working something in you. Even more than being just evidence of God's work in you, that tiny flicker of flame in your heart is God direct, directly working in you. That ray of desire is God working in you to will for his good pleasure. So take advantage of it and get to work, therefore. Also, what assurance this should give us. We can not only, not only can we defeat our sin, we will defeat our sin. How do I know that? Because God has set his hand to the task. And will he fail? Will he fall short? God forbid. He's the one doing it. So do not despair over sins that continue to easily beset you, Christian. Do not despair. Do not despise the work of repentance, but stand up and go again. But I can't control my temper. I keep falling so easily into fear and anxiety and doubting God. I can't say no to pornography. If God is the one at work within you, you most certainly can. And you will. You can defeat your sin, and you will defeat your sin. You know why? Because God is at work within you, so work out your salvation. Because he's the one working in you, so get to work. Work out your salvation precisely because it's guaranteed to be successful. Your sin will lie dead at your feet. And your hands will be around its throat. You did it. You killed your sin. God killed your sin. Yes, both. So get to work killing your sin. Christian, do not give up on your holiness. You must not. You cannot. Though you are weary with your sin, don't tire of repentance. Your sin is the problem. Get up and try again. Slay the dragon. Stay in the battle. Three. In our working, we rely on God. I mean, this ought to be our motto coming from a text like this. We will set our hands, we will set our hearts to the work of Christian obedience. And any success should be a cause for joy because it's a miracle in us 
So we depend on God every step of the way. Truly, like the lame man suddenly getting up and walking. The man born blind, able to see. Same magnitude, you, a sinner, able to be selfless. That's lame walking. That's blind seeing. Sinners aren't selfless unless God makes them so. Self-seeking heart of stone sinners, preferring the needs of another to their own. That's a miracle. And so because God is the one who does miracles, we rely on him every step of the way. Trust the Lord as you work out your salvation. Four, it is generally our harmony, not our belligerence, that shines in a dark world. It is our happiness, our joy, our love for one another. That's what shines. It's not your biting tongue, your pointed argument. You're pious, frowning. That's not what displays God's glory to a crooked and perverse generation. It's your harmony, your unity, your love for one another. So, for instance, as the world tries, for some reason, to hypersexualize my young children, I firmly resist. Turn my back to the world and lead my family in song around our dinner table. Harmony, unity, love. When the early church lived in a crooked and perverse generation, what did they do? They worshipped God. They broke bread with one another. They loved one another. They prayed for the forgiveness of their enemies. As they were fed to the lions. As they refused to bow the knee to Caesar. Firm belief in a crooked and perverse generation does not mean belligerence. We believe things firmly and we do not compromise and we live in harmony and unity and love. That's what shines in a dark world. May we do the same. Last application. I'll close with this. Do not mind your own business. Make it your business to be concerned with the holiness and obedience of your brothers and sisters. Members of Emmanuel Church, let us not be negligent in the covenant promises we have made to one another. We will walk together in love, praying for one another, encouraging each other in our Christian walk, carefully watching over each other, and faithfully warning, exhorting, and admonishing one another as occasion may require. That's the covenant you made to your members, your fellow members. So like Paul, let your joy be wrapped up in the obedience of your brothers and sisters. Finally, sanctification is not just a theological term, it's a miracle. Obedience is not an individual experience that happens in you and you alone. It takes place within us, within a gathered community. And that community, they're surrounded by a hostile, crooked, twisted world that hates us and hates our God. The miracle of Christian obedience causes us to share in Christ's own mind by living in harmony, peace, and joy together.
So Emmanuel Church, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. May it be so. Let's pray. God, you are the one who does miracles. Lord, we come this morning stained with our sins, aware of our sins. Our sins are ever before us against you and you only have we sinned. But Lord, we ask you to do the miracle of holiness in our hearts. God, please continue to work in us both to will and to work for your good pleasure. And Lord, help us, give us the strength, the discipline, the resolve to work out our salvation. And God, so prove that you are working within us. Help us, Lord. We need your help. What can we do without you? So help us to be holy. In Jesus' name, amen.